0: Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Telly for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be doing a lecture about the Middle Passage. Uh, the Middle Passage, basically how people from West Africa came to the later United States, New World in general. A uh, bit of a warning before I get going. Um, this is about slavery. <laughs> this is about the horrors of slavery. This is pretty much the... Uh, the, the, the not nice stuff about history, uh, there's a lot of nice, not nice stuff about history, and this is certainly one of them. So when we last left off, I was talking about West African societies, uh, various kingdoms in West Africa. Remember I said uh, most African Americans can trace their ancestry, if they can, to West Africa. Now, also around this time period, Europeans are starting to do more exploration more colonization, and in particular, if you go over one slide, you will see that they are now interacting more with Africa. Now, Africa is not really the goal per se. Uh, most European nations are actually trying to have trade with Asia. Um, Asia, specifically China, has a lot of uh, trade goods that they want, a lot of, you know, fine jewels and you know, jade and silks and all sorts of fancy trade goods. Uh, a lot of uh, affluent goods, spices. Um, Africa is seen more as of—I um, don't want to say a trade stop, but it, it wasn't the real goal. Um, Asia was the real goal. Now they do, you know, uh, European nations do know that uh, Africa does have gold. They have quite a bit of gold. They—they they, they are familiar with Mansa Musa and how much gold he has. However, um, Europeans don't really go into the interior of Africa. That's something that actually happens. For many centuries, that Europeans really stay around the edges of Africa, never getting too far from the ocean, not going into the interior of Africa. Uh, had the P- Europeans known where the goldfields of bound and Bodre were, I-, I guarantee they would have tried to conquer the area and taken over the goldfields for themselves. But you do have a lot of West African kingdoms that are that are pretty accommodating to the Europeans, getting them trade goods, you know, trading for gold, and later for slaves. Now, the first European nation to really get involved in Africa from a trade standpoint is Portugal. Uh, Portugal, uh, it's on the Iberian Peninsula, just north, of, uh, just north of Africa, on the western side of Africa. You know, you have Spain and Portugal right there. I mean, there's been trade between Portugal and the North Africans since time immemorial. However, um, later on, once the kingdoms like Mali and all get, get much larger... Uh, the Portuguese start kind of going more to the southern part of West Africa, kind of going around the Horn. Uh, I, I should also mention that um, Europeans don't really know how far down Africa goes. <laughs> um, they, they assume that it goes all the way to, the, you know, they, they assume that it ends at some point, but uh, there, there really wasn't a lot of exploration until Gama to actually go around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and see that there's actually a sea route on the way to Asia. Uh, now, another guy who you probably heard of is Columbus. Christopher Columbus, he is actually, sell- he's Genovese, and he's actually sailing for Spain. He is sailing for Spain. Um, he accidentally lands in the Americas. Uh, he's convinced that uh, the Earth is a lot smaller than it actually is, and that if he goes west, he can mine a quicker route to Asia. Uh, spoiler alert, it, it, it's not a quicker route to Asia whatsoever. And he discovers, well, he discovers, in quotation marks, there are plenty of millions of people already living there. But he finds the New World, uh, ultimately called the Americas, after Americo Vespucci, uh, another Italian sailor. He lands in America, uh, doesn't really find too much gold at first. Uh, The Spanish find that quite a bit later. Not quite a bit later, but a little bit later. Uh, But he does find indigenous peoples. And even early on, Columbus starts enslaving indigenous peoples. He brings a slew of them back to Spain to show like, hey, this is what the New World is like. Um, He even later on gets condemned by Spain for being a little bit too brutal as a slaver. Uh, why do they want these um, indigenous Americans as slaves? Of their it's mainly for economic purposes. They, they haven't really figured out what they're gonna do with these people or you know what value the new world has. Um, later on, they will discover gold, but otherwise, they want people to work for them. They want people to do kind of the grunt labor, and so they start going with our indigenous people. Now, there's a problem with indigenous people. Um, <laughs> they die quite a bit. Um, They don't have the immunities to various European diseases. And so specifically smallpox, but a lot of other diseases that are common in Europe, just totally ravage the Native American population, specifically those enslaved. Also, uh, it was found pretty early on that um, if a Native American who doesn't get, you know, a disease and die, uh, doesn't want to be enslaved, it's really easy for them to run away and go back to their tribe. Um, that's that's not hard at all for these Native Americans. They would run away, uh, go back to other tribes, or their own tribe. It was very hard for the Europeans to get the Native Americans to have sustained labor. Now, that does change in time in certain places, but early on, it's kind of hard. And so this demand for a new workforce really once causes the Atlantic slave trade. Now, as we said before... You know, slavery had been around for forever. Um, like, you know, it's existed for all cultures for thousands of years. Uh, before the Europeans, the S- Sudanese were kind of uh, doing the Islamic slave trade. Uh, Islamic slave trade, basically they were enslaving everybody. Um, I don't know why the textbook included blacks and whites, uh, because the, as I've mentioned in our first class, the, the concept of black and white really wasn't like cemented yet. Uh, But it's a lot of different people who are being, you know, enslaved in Islamic slave trade. I think what the book is trying to say is that it wasn't really based upon race. It was not really a race-based slave trade. It's basically just individuals in the Islamic slave trade. Uh, Mainly women and children are being enslaved. Uh, That's because they're usually used as concubines or house servants. Uh, There's really not that much of a demand for, like, strong young male slaves uh, mainly because of the threat. The threat of basically, like, you know, if you have somebody who is stronger than you, they might, like, kill you or run away or something. Now, the trans-Saharan slave trade made, made some West African cities quite wealthy. Uh, this is basically trading from, the you know, Western Africa to places like Cairo, even some into the Middle East. Uh, this is that type of slave trade that is being done. As I said, it's mainly in... Uh, mainly... Uh, mainly, you know, small time. It, it's not a, a major demand by any stretch. I mean, there's much more demand for gold, but it's, it's, it's a decent part of the slave trade. Um, as you can see on this next slide, uh, basically how much slavery goes up, particularly after, after uh, 1650, just the sheer amount of slaves that are coming out of, uh, out of Africa. And particularly, you can see how the Gulf of Guinea, which is the southern part of um, West Africa, really explodes high. Now, Europeans, initially, I mean, this is before Columbus, before the New World, uh, they purchased slaves from African traders. Um, Before America, of course, after America, they buy slaves from traders as well. Uh, At first, there's really not that much of a demand for the slaves in Europe, uh, because there's already a huge labor population in Europe. Uh, They are not really keen on using these individuals for, like, concubines or house servants, and also, uh, there's already a huge labor force in Europe, which is actually there's more labor than they need. Uh, there's actually a problem of too many people in Europe, and there's uh, there's fears of like you know peasant uprisings and revolts and things like that. So they really don't want to bring in slaves into there. Uh, later on, though, whenever America, uh, the Americas, I should say, whenever the New World really becomes a much more uh, viable economic opportunity that's when Europeans really start uh, buying slaves is because they need the labor force and the Native Americans don't make a good labor force because they die or they run away because who wants to work? Well, not just who wants to work. That's a bad analogy. Who wants to be a slave? Let's be real. Like if you have any shot not to be a slave, you don't want to be enslaved. Now, where do they get the slaves? Where do they get the slaves? Generally through warfare. Uh, Generally through warfare is how people really become enslaved, Uh, specifically some of the West African kingdoms, uh, usually those based around the Sahel, which are much better organized. uh, They tend to kind of invade the forest kingdoms and start uh, enslaving those around them. Uh, They're not even kingdoms in the forest, they're more like individual tribes, sometimes just families. But these are Africans that are doing this. Uh, remember, the concept of race didn't really exist back then. Later on, like once we get into the uh, 18th century, you know, 1800, well, 1700s or the, uh, or the 18th century or like the 19th century, 1800s. You do have more like Africans talking about this idea of like racial solidarity or like, hey, we're enslaving people of the same complexion as us. But that didn't exist at first. At first, basically, the people who were in, doing the enslaving were Africans, and they were enslaving other Africans. There's really no idea of racial solidarity, not even amongst Europeans. Uh, there was no concept of white either. Um, they view themselves as different. Remember, as I said in the first class, the concept of race is fairly new, and this is one of those times where it gets developed. Now, you have to remember, until Columbus, the, uh, the slave trade, the African slave trade, was actually quite small. Uh, particularly the the um, outside of the outside of Africa itself, the, the trans-Saharan slave trade was pretty big, but the European slave trade, not that big. Um, limited number of customers, primarily Portugal. Later, Spain would get involved in it quite a bit. Um, like I said, not not too much uh, outside of that. Columbus does really expand it extensively. But if you go over one slide, you're going to see. Actually, this is from West Africa, uh, from one of these Western kingdoms who did the enslaving. Uh, basically, their depiction of Europeans. Uh, these are Portuguese people, basically showing what they, you know, showing what they, they think of them. Basically, these are these traders coming in. Uh, they they want to you know get gold, they want to get ivory, but they also want human beings to a much lesser extent. Early on, later on, as I said, it's going to get much much bigger. Now, Spain and Portugal, as I said, they dominated the Atlantic slave trade. Actually, early on, uh, the the Spain and Portugal got the Pope to declare certain realms of the New World—you know, part for Portugal, uh, part for Spain. Uh, You know, it wasn't too too large at first. Uh, It's not until uh, sugar becomes very popular in the um, Caribbean that slavery really, really, really starts getting uh, much bigger. The other unique thing about slavery in the new world, um, and when I say America, I don't mean the United States, but you know the, the, the new world, the Americas, North and South America, is that it becomes increasingly based upon race. This is the first time where you really have concepts of race and the idea that one's uh, standing, uh, class, caste, whatever you want to call it, that one's standing was based upon race. Remember, before this time, uh, particularly in the trans-Saharan slave trade, people of all different complexions were enslaved. You know, lighter complexion, darker complexion, what we would today would call black and white, they were all enslaved. But now for the first time, actually the first time in human history, people are being deemed as being slaves and perceived as slaves based solely upon their complexion based solely upon their race. This is where concepts of race start coming out. The concept of black and white. Uh, whenever we're in class on Monday, I'll probably talk to you about the concept of the other. Uh, that's, that's one of my big concepts you need to know for this class, actually for any class I do, is the concept of the other. Uh, simply put, the other is how human beings define themselves in opposition to something else. It's kind of like a scapegoat or something, an other, just this kind of individual that you can define yourself against. And what happens is that dark, complected people who were from Africa became viewed as others, like a a solitary group viewed on the lower end of the social spectrum. This is where I say that slavery in the United States was based, sorry, slavery in the Americas was based upon race. This idea that if you were in the new world and you were of a dark complexion, you were perceived as being a slave. And as a slave, you were perceived to have other characteristics as well. Being low class, uh, being unintelligent, being not that good, like being viewed as somewhat less valuable than anybody else in the world. And this is why I said in the first class that racism is the parent of race, not the child. You don't really have concepts of race without value judgments, if that makes sense. Like, there is no conception of race before this time. It's just like, oh, yeah, that person's dark-complected, and because of that, they have other, these things together. You don't really have that, this kind of solidarity. The idea that you were linking and grouping all these people together in Africa, who, remember, they are different tribes, they are different religions, they are different everything. They have nothing in common other than the fact that they have a dark complexion. Take them out of that, uh, that area. And all of a sudden, they become linked all together. I should also mention that unlike the uh, Trans-Saharan slave trade and the West African slave trade, I've mentioned this a couple times, most of these slaves are men, and and to a lesser extent boys, but mainly men. Mainly the, um, I hate hate to say surplus, but the individuals in Africa who were not deemed as highly valuable as slaves all of a sudden have become super valuable in the New World. In West Africa, they're worried about the male, you know, the strong young male slaves uh, being warriors and fighters and, and, you know, overthrowing their masters. Take them an ocean away. There's no way that they can escape or really go anywhere. Now they've become prime, you know, farmhands. You know, they've become prime, you know, picking sugar or doing the planting or doing manual labor. If you go one more to the map, you're going to see this uh, kind of a pretty good example of what the Triangle Trade was kind of early on. Uh, Oftentimes, we talk about slavery in terms of the Middle Passage, which is literally the passage between Africa and the New World. Um, You know, you do later on when you have the Triangle Trade where it goes on from North America to Europe, from Europe to Africa, and from Africa to North America— um, as you can tell from this map, I mean, kind of ignore the Trans-Saharan trade, which is its own baby, but, you know, once you see where are all these slaves going, you see that pretty much most of them end up in the Caribbean. A lot of them end up in the Caribbean. Um, a lot end up in the Caribbean if they ultimately end up in the New World. Sorry, end up in the United States, the later United States. But as you can see, if you look at the sheer numbers, the most slaves are going to Brazil. Most African slaves go to Brazil. And here's the thing with Brazil it's not a great place to be a slave. Uh, they would literally work them to death. Like, that was part of the equation for basically if a slaver bought somebody and brought them to Brazil, they figured they might get a good eh, five to six years of labor out of them before they ultimately died of disease or overwork or something. Uh, it's not only it's not until you get into places like uh, you know the Caribbean and also really in the later United States where slave mortality rates get a lot lower, but most slaves end up in either the Caribbean or in Brazil. In Brazil, they get worked to death. Uh, they, they, they get worked to death. Uh, in the Caribbean and these, some of these sugar plantations, mortality rates are quite a bit lower. They're able to uh, survive. Some of them have children. And that's where you kind of get the the population of the Caribbean now. Uh, North America was not very large for slavery at first, and certainly not very popular. We're going to talk about that more when we get into Colonial America next class. Next lecture, I should say. But uh, most slaves actually end up, either in Brazil where they get worked to death, or the ones who, like, survive, they end up in the Caribbean. Uh, Martinique for the French... um, Sometimes Haiti for the French. Uh, the, the English prefer going to Barbados. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Now, Spain and Portugal have this kind of good, being a relative term, but they have a pretty steady slave you know, trade going on. Uh, it's not until the Dutch really get into involved and they start messing around the Caribbean and the West Indies, uh, they start bringing in more slaves. Later on, the, uh, the Spanish and Portuguese monopoly over slaves uh, gets kind of dismantled, and so England and France can start getting into it as well. Um, England and France follow the Dutch. Uh, one th- Another thing you're going to see quite a bit in the history of slavery, that new crops increase slave demand. Uh, sugar is the first one. The second one that really causes a huge spike in demand is tobacco. Uh, tobacco comes into it. Uh, fun fact, fun fact. This is not a fun fact at all. Uh, The same guy who introduced slavery to England also introduced tobacco to England. Um, If there is a Hall of Fame for, like, worst people in history, he might be on top of it. Um, Admiral Sir John Hawkins was not the first person, the first European to ever enslave an African, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, He was the first one who showed that they could make it profitable. Um, He was the first person to show England, hey, we can get really, really rich off slaves, Likewise, he first introduced tobacco to England. Now, that's Admiral Sir John Hawkins. I'm not going to ask you about him. But, uh, yeah, if there's ever, like, one guy in history who (laughs) kind of screwed up the most, um, I would say, you know, introducing slavery to England and getting it, like, much larger. Likewise, introducing tobacco. Um, Admiral Sir John Hawkins is one of those individuals it's actually kind of funny. Um, a couple years ago, I did a genealogy search on me, and it turns out I am his descendant. Um, through, my, <laughs> through my dad's mom's side, I am I'm a descendant of the worst person ever, so Eww, don't hold it against me. <laughs> I guess that's the one funny bit from today is that I'm, I'm related to the worst person ever. So after a series of wars, um, I'm not going to get into the exact wars because you really need to know, um, England starts to dominate the slave trade. England starts to dominate the slave trade. Uh, There's a lot of money to be had in slavery, particularly with all these new crops of the new world. As more people are coming to the new world, there's a lot more money to be had in slavery. And England's now at the front of it. And the profits of the slave trade really helped to fund the Industrial Revolution. That's a term you might have heard of quite a bit Is the Industrial Revolution, this idea that you know England becomes more modernized, they become more mechanized, terribly gets rid of the old peasant system, of the old surf system. But ironically, the, re- the reason they're able to like build these machines, which replace human labor, is because they get really rich off human labor, particularly a place like Liverpool. Liverpool in England was known as the place where they built the slave ships, slavers, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, another term I want you to go, if you go over one slide, is chattel. Chattel is a different type of slavery. We've had slavery since time immemorial. Like, the West African slave trade, you know, the the transatlantic slave trade, it's not new in the sense that, like, people are enslaving other people. The concept of race coming into it is new, and also the concept of chattel. Chattel comes from the same word as cattle. Uh, remember when we talked last class about West African slavery, the slave was considered part of the household. A slave had the same status as the master. In chattel slavery, enslaved people are treated like property. They are treated as though they are the same as like a cow or, or a piece of farm implement, like a, a plow. They are robbed of personhood. They don't get status. They don't get the chance to like, have their owner status rub up, rub up upon them. Um, they're just viewed as property. They are dehumanized. Like for instance, in West Africa, the slave of a King would have the same status as the King and he'd be lording over, you know, the slave of a, of a, of a middle-class person in chattel slavery in like this new world form of slavery. The slave of the richest planter was treated the same as the slave of the poorest person. If a poor person had a slave, they were, that slave was treated the exact same as anybody else. Uh, when we get into the new world, when we get into uh, colonial times in the United States, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this early. Uh, for instance, in the United States, in the, colon- in the colonies, um, a, s- a master could murder their slave and not be charged with the crime because it wasn't viewed as killing somebody, it was viewed as destruction of one's own property, and that's not a crime. It's really robbing the personhood. Remember, in West Africa and other slave societies, like ancient Greece, like slaves could have children. Uh, slave children were generally not, um, you know, considered enslaved. Uh, slaves are often educated. A lot of times slaves were like teachers. That's not the case under this new form of sla- slavery. this chattel slavery, where slaves are viewed same level as like an ox, same level as a plow. They are viewed not as people, but as property. And that's another big difference. The the kind of development of race, but also the development of chattel. Mm. This is uh, the city of Luanda. Uh, Basically, the Portuguese make this city in West Africa um. Yeah, Portuguese really start sending them to Brazil. Spain does other places. Uh, here's another good map. This is more the triangle trade, as you can see. Once the New England colonies and the North America get more developed than the English colonies, you have more goods going, to directly from England. But you can see the Middle Passage is still there with slaves. Go over one slide. You're going to see a picture, well, a painting of one of these slave ships. Uh, this is actually a very late uh, slave ship. This is actually right before the civil war so slavery was outlawed well not slavery was outlawed uh, the import of slaves was outlawed so this must have been a um, you know smuggler of some sort bringing in a ton of human cargo <laughs> so all right so what how does one become enslaved what is the process of somebody going from being captured to getting to the new world well the first thing is they are captured uh, they are generally captured by sla- uh, by you know other west africans uh, different tribes. Uh, it started out with, uh, with just like a, a, a side effect of a war, but then you start having uh, different tribes who like go to war for no reason other than making slaves. Remember, it used to be slave, slaves were like a side effect of war. Or like you go to war for another reason and then you capture their people. You wouldn't just go to war to go to war. Now that the Europeans are supplying, or are, are not supplying, but are, are having this very increased demand for human captives, uh, various peoples, specifically the, Desha- the Ashanti people and the Dahomey people around uh, West Africa, are become very well known for just basically, we will go to war with anybody to capture slaves just to make money off of them. Uh, they are also helped by the European traders who provide firearms. Uh, that does really well against the forest people who are generally not very well armed. Uh, they, they certainly don't have firearms. They barely have weapons. And so it's it's a pretty easy get. Um, by and large, by and large, the West Africans who are doing the enslaving don't like Europeans to go into the interior of Africa. Um, to put it bluntly, it's they don't want to get the middleman cut out. They, they, they are aware they are serving as middlemen and um, they know if the Europeans have a way to like find the slaves, you know, find the, the forced people themselves. They might cut out the West African kingdoms and the West African kingdoms won't get their cut of the profits. It's a horrible way to think of things, but that's pretty much what it is. Uh, likewise, the Europeans were okay not just kind of like sit on the, you know, just wait on the shore and let the West Africans do the dirty work. Um, it's it's kind of like the, the gold fields of Bamboo and Bure, like they wouldn't let anybody know where they are because if they know where they are, they might go there themselves. So Europeans would provide firearms uh, very rarely, I'm not saying never, but very rarely would the Europeans themselves go into the interior and do the capturing. I'm not saying never, I'm just saying rarely. Uh, mainly just because from a logistics uh, standpoint, you know, they wouldn't necessarily know where to go. Uh, getting too far from one ship and supply lines could mean death. I mean, Europeans were terrified of the interior of Africa for many centuries after this, uh, just because they didn't know what all was going on there. Uh, th- there was a movie, well, a TV series that came out whenever I was a kid. Actually, right before I was born, called Roots. And it, it, one of the famous scenes shows like, you know, the white slave traders going into the interior of Africa and just like capturing Kutukende. Um That, and you know, like, capturing them with nets on horses. I'm not saying that never happened, but it wasn't a very economical way to do it. Especially when West African kingdoms were more than willing to like, go in for you. So whenever you think about who's capturing who, I mean, remember concepts of race really don't exist yet. So they don't think they're selling out their own people. Uh, it's not like, you know, you enslave grandma or something. It's basically they just go to the forest peoples and just kind of start capturing them. Uh, captives, once they are captured, uh, they are brought to coast. Uh, they're generally like put together in a chain gang or put, uh, you know, restraints around them. Uh, they're held in what's called Factories. Uh, factories are basically these headquarters for various European companies. It's more like a holding pen, almost like a prison where basically they, they just wait until there's enough, uh, enough captives to justify a a full load in a slave ship. Uh, They're often branded like cattle, basically to let people know that these people are enslaved. So in case they do escape, people know that they're enslaved, but remember, um, You know the people who are like they're capturing people who don't speak the same language as them. um, You know are not of the same anything as them. So and they also try to get them fairly far from where they capture them. So escaping then is kind of unusual. Uh, There is brutalization, European brutalization, but also some of the West African brutalization, meant to destroy self-respect and identity. Uh, In a second, well, in a couple minutes, I'm going to talk about seasoning. But that is a huge part of the whole slave equation is basically they want to, like, rob you of your identity. They want to rob you of your ability to think of yourself as an individual. They want you to be broken. The Broken, so basically, like, you don't rebel. You don't do whatever. You just leave. Uh, head factories, like I said, uh, these are all over West Africa, Um Generally, the European nations are actually kind of uh, protective from other European nations. Uh, there's a very famous, um, actually several famous factories are on various islands off the coast of West Africa. Uh, the guns are pointed out. They're like pointed out to sea. They're more terrified of other Europeans coming in than like a slave revolt or other Africans attacking them. If you go over one more, you're going to see uh, an engraving. This is from the 19th century basically showing what slave traders do. You can see they they have various peoples captured, they're chained up, uh, put into different restraints, kind of leading them from the forest places to the coast. So now we get to the crossing. Now we get to the actual crossing. This is a very uh, not great place. I I should mention that death is very common at every step of the whole slavery um, experience. Um, by the time we get to like the 18th century though, sorry through the nineteenth century, uh, this, the mortality rates are much lower. Um, early on, it's anywhere from thirty to forty percent of all people who are captured are enslaved, uh, who, who, who are enslaved, I should say die. Uh, by the time we get to like you know, right before the Civil War, it's about maybe five percent. So the technology or whatever gets better, quote unquote, but more people are being enslaved. So after being held in a factory for eh, a couple weeks or fewer a few months, uh, it's now time to do the crossing. Basically, the captives are, are forced to leave. Uh, this voyage lasts anywhere from three to six months, uh, depending on the weather, depending on like how good the how good the um, the, the, the what's the word I'm looking for the winds are, um, you know how the tides are, it, the the skill of the ship. Of course, later slave ships are, are much faster and they're much more stable. Um, so they can usually make it about three months. But um, early on, it it could be anywhere from, I mean, six months is a bit long, I would say, Um, unless you got something, a very bad weather or very unfortunate luck. Uh, It would usually take you early on eh, four, four and a half months. Uh, By the time you get to like right before this war, it'll take three months. Why would it cause delays? Well, a lot of times it just could be another European nation. Uh, European nations were very known for like trying to fight each other, trying to like capture these various slave ships and steal the cargo, which is slaves. Remember, in chattel slavery, I mean, I hate to say it, people were worth money. Like it was viewed as just like an inventory, and they wanted to take it. Uh, likewise, with piracy, uh, very common for pirates to come and try to steal slaves because they were worth money and they could try to make money themselves. Uh, some natural causes would be a thing like a hurricane. Uh, there were hurricanes back then, and they didn't know how to track them. Um, you know I, know, I know nowadays we get you know weeks, if not day, well, days, if not weeks of preparation for where a hurricane will be. Uh, they didn't have that back then. You know, a hurricane would kind of come. A hurricane would just totally destroy one of these ships. Likewise, uh, equally dangerous is the doldrums. Uh, the doldrums are a part of the Atlantic Ocean, kind of near the middle, where it's known for not having a lot of wind. Uh, without a lot of wind, you're really not going very fast, and you would run out of supplies. Uh, you have to remember, this isn't... We'll talk about that in a second. But when you're talking about like the slave technology, if you go ever one, uh, one slide, uh, the ships are called slavers. Uh, the, the ships are called slavers. Um, you know, so the people who do the enslaving are called slavers, but the ships themselves are often called slavers. Now, slaves are uh, they're, they're tight-packed upon ships, Chained together. It's it's a horrible equilibrium they have to find between, okay, if we have not enough slaves on, you know, it's not worth our time and the money, you know, to take the, you know, have four months worth of supplies, keep these people alive, and, you know, how much money are we going to make off them, versus... Uh, if you have too many slaves, uh, you can have very high mortality rates, and if one slave dies of a disease, they're very likely to spread that disease to somebody else, and that could be a major problem. So there's always this level of equilibrium, and also uh, more people need more supplies, and you know the more supplies you have, the more weight you have, the more weight you have, it might be more, might be slower. Also, if it goes longer, um, you know, so the supplies might go bad, it might rot, you might have an outbreak. It's it's very very uh, meticulous math they have to do for it, it's I call it the devil's like math honestly because it's just like it's horrible you're trying to figure out how many people are gonna die or not die so you can make your money it's, it's you are weighing human life in exchange for money uh, by the way if you're wondering how much of a slave cost um, in modern day money the, the figure I like to use in modern day money is about forty grand. Um, about 40 grand in modern day money is about how much a slave would cost. It varied wildly based upon the region, what type of slave they are, what type of health they are. Uh, we'll talk about that more later, but, uh, just, just, just think in your head about 40 grand. So, you know, a fairly decent amount of money that you could get off of a slave. Also, epidemics are fairly common. i uh, sorry. My, my knee just hit my desk, uh, Epidemics are actually pretty common in this time period. Uh, dysentery, they call it the bloody flux. Uh, dysentery is pretty much where you poop yourself to death. It's not a very pretty way to go. Uh, it would cause high mortality rate. Also, like, things like suicide would happen quite often. Uh, basically, the, uh, you know, the slaves would get just despondent and uh, not really <laughs> go along with it. Uh, by the time we get to the 18th century, slavers had improved in their technology, uh, the, the boats. Uh, they were built to resist storms better, better ventilated, and also included like hardware specifically for enslaved peoples. Uh, the earliest slavers were just cargo ships that would like, carry cargo, I don't know, bananas or grog or whatever, you know, tropical plants, not necessarily human beings. It's only later on that they start designing ships specifically designed to carry human beings, um, have bondage hardware, pretty much just like, you know, uh, handcuffs every so often to make sure you got people there. Uh, The best slavers were made in Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool, England becomes very well known for their slaver technologies. And that's not a word you usually associate with slavery especially with the, with the voyage over, is technology. But just think about it. They're using specific designs to make sure they can fit more slaves in there, uh, make it go a little bit faster, and make sure that the slaves survive a bit better so they can make more money. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a very famous picture of a um, uh, British slave ship. So how many Africans were on there? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a lot. It might actually have been underreported. Uh, there was there was math. I want to say it's like you could have two slaves for every ton the ship was. Uh, that was that was supposedly the regulation. Uh, that was like the code, if you would. Uh, that was not followed very often. These spaces were cramped. Uh, usually, not enough to have a person stand up. Usually, you can only lie down or maybe crawl around if you're allowed to if you're allowed to move in general. Um, You know, sanitation is a major issue. Uh, Basically, whenever you go to the bathroom, there's really nowhere for it to go, so it just kind of lays there. Um, These places are hot. They smell bad. Disease runs rampant. Uh, They try to keep men and women segregated. That doesn't happen too well. We'll talk about what happens to the ladies in a second, but it's a real mess. Uh, We know what life on one of these slavers is like because, well, we have different accounts. Uh, For instance, Oladula Iquano, he was a slave himself. Uh, He was captured in Africa and actually was sent to the West Indies. And later on, uh, he he got out of slavery, got educated, uh, learned how to read and write, and actually wrote a book uh, kind of describing his experience, his memories of it. Uh, He recalls basically the the slave ship being overcrowded, uh, being very unsanitary. Uh, He gets sick, almost dies at one point during his uh, voyage over. Just because of all the, you know, poop and pee and nasty stuff, all kind of coming together, uh, he says it's very dark. You know, you're on the undercarriage of a boat. Also, uh, the chains could be chafing. Basically, wearing chains all day long and you're sweating, it like could really like ruin your skin, chafe your skin, mess you up really bad. Uh, he talks about the desperation of a lot of these slaves. Uh, you got to remember, these people. May or may not know each other from Africa. A lot of times they don't. A lot of times they're from different villages. They have different languages. They have different traditions. Um, they may, you know, you may not be with somebody you know. And a lot of times they get desperate. Um, some of the slaves would just jump over to, to make sure that, like you know, they they would theoretically you would swim try to swim back. Uh, that was only within the first week or so that, like you know, whenever you we were still in sight of uh, the African coast, that you had a lot of people try to jump over. Later on, of course, uh, people would jump over in the middle just to get out of it and and die, to drown. Uh, Later on, some of the slavers were trying to prevent this by chaining slaves together. So basically, they're like two together, and they, you know, so that one would resist the whole jumping over thing, but sometimes two would jump over at the same time. Now, the slavers themselves, the, the individuals, the people doing the enslaving, they were aware that, you know, it's not good for people to just sit in darkness for like. Three months and like in their own filth, and so they, they they didn't understand germ theory or modern day medicine. But they knew it's important for people to like come out every so often uh, to move around, get get the bud the blood pumping, you know, get get your uh, muscles moving, uh, so muscles don't atrophy. You have to remember they want these slaves to come back. To, they want these slaves to come to the new world in pretty good shape. Uh, they're trying to make money off of them, and you're not going to make a lot of money off of a very sick slave who's too weak to do anything and infertile. So they would force the slaves to do things like walk around, to dance, do exercise. Not all the time, maybe, maybe an hour or so a day. Um, not all at once as well. They kind of had a cycle where basically they, they, the, the deck of a ship could not fit all the slaves that were underneath there, but they'd have like a cycle where they bring a couple slaves out, make them dance and sing for a while to basically make sure that their muscles don't atrophy. Um, you know, get them a chance to get out for a little bit. If you go over one more slide, you'll see a picture of Adula. Um, yeah, she gets a photograph later on. Um, no, that's not a photograph. That's a painting. It's a, it's a photograph of a painting uh, done by Sir J- Joshua Reynolds. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, that, that's him. He, like I said, he later becomes fairly well known. Another one you might be familiar with is John Newton. Uh, John Newton starts out as an indentured servant. Uh, indentured servant is somebody who sells their labor. Um, so theoretically, the same status of a slave. But it's only for a period of time. After like seven to ten years, once you get to the colonial times, it's seven years, uh, a person is freed. It's basically if they want to get passage or if they want to learn a, crew, a trade or something, they would become an indentured servant. John Newton is one of these. Uh, he starts out as an indentured servant. Later on, he becomes a crew member and finally captain of a slaver. Uh, he works on a slave ship as an indentured servant for quite a while. Uh, once he you know, works off his indentured ship, he becomes a crew member. And then later on, he becomes a captain himself. Um, he made several voyages from West Africa to the West Indies, uh, doing it quite a bit. He left a very prolific diary where he talks about um, you know his life as a slaver, uh, his life as a captain, going around, sailing around, um, you know... <sighs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to give any passages of it to read, but if you want to, you can read them. And he, he, he's very blunt about, like, you know, I had to pick up 50 slaves because I can only fit, you know, 30 in there, but I figured a couple were going to die, and I picked up this much grog and this much food because I want to feed them, but I don't want to feed them too much. And it's, it's very um, stark how much he is. Uh, later on, he would retire. Uh, he would retire. Actually, he's kind of young when he retires. He's only, like, in his mid-30s, early 40s. And then he gets involved with the with the church, with the Christian church, and really repents of his involvement in the slave trade. Uh, he, he realizes that, like, all the things he did were pretty awful. He's like, oh my gosh, why people are people too. He's like, you know, God, please forgive me. Uh, he writes a, a poem called Amazing Grace, which uh, later gets turned into a hymn, where basically he talks about how, like, he is... <laughs> pleading God for forgiveness. Like, thank you God for forgive me from being a horrible slaver person. Uh, now, like I said, the provisions for the middle passage, like I said, um, slave captains, they didn't want to starve them. They, they didn't want them to die. They, they wanted them to eat well enough to like live so they can make their money and like not just barely live, but be fairly healthy. So they would try to buy like West African staples for the slaves. Um, they didn't try to change up their diet too too much. That was something else the West Africans would sell them as various West African foods, um, you know, yams, millet, um, meal, that sort of thing. Uh, some really unscrupulous slavers would skimp on supplies to try to save money. They thought maybe if we if we skimp on supplies or if we like really push it, we could get there faster and we won't have to buy as much food. Uh, a lot of slaves do die of malnutrition because it might take longer or the food didn't keep as well, they don't have proper refrigeration, uh, and some just plain refuse to eat. Um, there's been a lot of studies about levels of depression upon slave ships and with slave, enslaved peoples. I'm prone to believe it. I'm prone to believe that like it's a very depressing place. You don't see the sun for maybe an hour a day where you're forced to just kind of dance around for a little while to make sure your muscles don't atropy. Uh, the death rates, as I said, are pretty bad on slave ships. Um, like I said, when, when it started out, it's about 40% of everybody who gets on a slave ship dies. Later on, it's about 5%, but it's really not good. Um, dysentery kills most. Smallpox to a lesser extent, but it's mainly dysentery. Uh, ships usually had a surgeon on them. Uh, a surgeon is just a general term for a, a doctor. Um, you know, they're, they're, they did very rare surgeries, I should say. It's just more like a doctor... Uh, these ship surgeons were basically paid by the amount of slaves that came back alive. Basically, if, you know, if you're the surgeon on a ship, and if you're, you know, let's say, you, you have a cargo of 100 slaves, um, you know, if 50 die, you're not going to get paid very well. In fact, if more than 50 die, you're probably going to get fired. Uh, oftentimes, these, um, these surgeons would not listen to the various West Africans who might be like, hey, I know what's wrong with this person, or like, this food's not good. Um, you know, here's some health stuff we know. Uh, a lot of times they viewed West African anything as superstition. Uh, even John Newton, he, he didn't think too much of West African religions, I should say. Uh, the slaves, whenever they did see what the, uh, what, the, uh, what the Europeans were doing, they often were kind of like confused by their beliefs and various practices of the captors. A lot of of disbelief, a lot of just like, okay, this person is weird. Um, Ecuador talks about that sometimes in his book, where he's like seeing the various things the Europeans were doing and just being like, that is some weird stuff. There is resistance, of course, some resistance at sea. Um, Some of them rebel rather than face bondage. Uh, There are definitely some mutinies. There are definitely some mutinies. Um, Don't really succeed. (laughs) Don't really succeed. Uh, the, the, you're more likely to have a mutiny like within the first couple of days, uh, while you're still inside of Africa, because basically they're like, okay, maybe we can go back there, or jump off and swim, or if we just kill the kill the slavers, we could, you know, commandeer this boat and go around. Um, that's why a lot of slavers don't let their slaves out of the cargo until they're out of the eyesight of Africa. Uh, basically, saying like, hey, you know, they don't know where they're going, they don't know, where, you know, they're kind of resign themselves to it. Um, like I said, other slaves would you know, kind of refuse their captors by doing things like trying to drown themselves, like jumping over, um, also starving themselves to death. They, they knew that the Europeans wanted them to eat, so they'd stay healthy. Um, later on, in the later slavery times, they would have special devices to force open people's mouths so they could pour gruel into it. And I should mention, the slave food was not great by any stretch of the imagination. It was pretty much just to give people calories. Uh, They're generally fed two times a day, just like a spoonful of gruel or something, just just enough calories to keep you alive and not starving, and not starving. Now, this is where it gets interesting, and I, I want you to kind of dwell upon this for a second, because I've described a lot of very brutal, cruel stuff. And there's been a lot of talk amongst different historians, different scholars About this concept of cruelty. How much of this cruelty was intentional? How much of this was unintentional? Just how much of it actually occurred? You know, some have said that, um, you know, only the most cruel of slavers got talked about. Most of them tried to treat their, you know, human cargo fairly well because remember, it's a money making opportunity. You know, what benefit do you get by, like, maiming or killing? Something that ultimately is going to try to earn you money. Uh, So these scholars say that maybe the tales of uh, cruelty have been exaggerated. Others say, no, no, it probably was very cruel because you have to break the spirit of the individual, make them more likely to comply, make them, you know, more likely to accept their new lot in life. You know, three months is not that long of a time to really break somebody of something. Um, Others have said that, um, you know, the slavers suffered just as much as the enslaved, and that's actually true for a lot of the earlier voyages. Um, The people doing the enslaving, even though they theoretically had better food and uh, more opportunity to walk around and do stuff, uh, they died as much of the same sort of diseases as the slaves did. So is it really necessarily cruel if the people doing the cruelty are being treated just as bad? We'll talk about this in class, of course, but, um, and also I I should mention the primary cause of death for a lot of these people is uncertain. You know, is it, are they just beating them up, um, for, for no reason? Well, we don't know. I mean, it's not likely that a slaver would necessarily report that themselves because they would get in trouble with their bosses for, you know, ruining the cargo. We can tell, however, from like the writings of John Newton and other slavers that, um, the, these the people doing the enslaving really were aware of the level of cruelty they were doing. They definitely did not think of their um, enslaved um, individuals that they had with them as people. They thought of them as cargo, and they also you have this other of otherness to them. You know, you could call it cultural strangers, as the textbook does. I prefer the term other. Uh, basically, you know, the Europeans didn't think of the Africans as the same. They thought of them as somebody else, and so they were prone to be very cruel. Now, why be cruel? I mean, that's that's a bigger question than just slavery. But you know, why are people cruel to one another? Eh, maybe talk about that in the quiz, cough, cough, hint, hint, or whenever we talk about it in class. Also, African women are treated quite bad on these slave ships as well. Uh, Women in general were viewed as less valuable than men in the the, the Atlantic slave trade. In the African slave trade, women were much more valuable. But in the slave trade of sending people over to the New World, women were seen as less valuable. Um, you know, Big, strong men were wanting to do the work. Women were really not known for doing the work in this time period. It's only later on in places like North America where you have a relatively equal male-to-female um, enslaved people ratio. Uh, however, we're talking early slavery when they're going to places like the Caribbean or to um, you know, Brazil. Not a lot of women are being sent over. And the women who are sent over, yes, they tried to keep them in a separate compartment to you know, stop them from being messed around with. Uh, that doesn't really help too, too much. Um, they're often sexually abused, abused by crew members and I hate to say it, but also by the, uh, other enslaved people themselves whenever they get a chance. So being an enslaved woman is not that great in this time period, um, Probably because of this, African women uh, who do make it to the New World were actually less likely to like, try to get married and have children of their own. Um, very well could have been because of the treatment they had on the slave ships. Now, once they actually make landfall, once they actually make landfall, uh, once they get to the West Indies, um, like I said, Martinique generally for the uh, French, Barbados generally for the English, even once they get to the West Indies they generally don't bring the slaves aboard uh, just quite yet there's usually a week or two wherever ever basically they made the cargo cargo just as good as they could they wanted to maximize the selling price um, do anything they could to like try to make them look better uh, try to get them healthied up maybe in, in you know when, now that they're Closer to the, to the land, they could like try to get more food, fatten them up a little bit. Uh, they want to get them to look as good as possible, improve their appearance and their health before they get sold. However, things like cruelty, confinement, and disease are really not easily remedied. They, they try to do things. I mean, I've read accounts where they would try to plug the anuses of people with dysentery with hemp. So they basically, they wouldn't look like they were soil themselves all the time. But uh, once they do get to the slave market, the, the people who are wanting to you know buy these enslaved people, um, they give them very close inspections, uh, very, very, very close inspections, very humiliating inspections, where basically they get poked and prodded and shown everything they, they could. Um, you know these slave captains try to do everything they could to make their slaves look better, uh, they might try to dye the hair uh, it, it was even younger slaves would typically go gray from the uh, from the, just the trauma of the, of the voyage over. So some of these slave captains would try to dye their hair, uh, try to give them as much food as possible. I mentioned you know, plugging the anus so of like it wouldn't be leaking dysentery stuff. Um, you know they, Once they, they get purchased, um, they, they were brought off. They were basically roped off and brought over to where they go. Uh, as you go over one side, you'll see Martinique is pretty much where the French did theirs. Barbados is pretty much where the English did theirs. If you go over one more, uh, you're going to see basically one of these slave trades and um, in one of these Caribbean islands where basically the slaver, the, the slave masters would come. Uh, they would start you know, poking and prodding the enslaved people, giving them very embarrassing inspections, trying to make sure they were healthy and hale before they brought them over. Now, this is generally where most of your slave narratives would end, but there's actually a very important next step, which actually has quite a bit of mortality rates too. Um, of all the people who die in slavery, uh, about a third of them die actually during what's called the seasoning process. Uh, the seasoning process is like probably the most important part of a slave, you know voyage that you've never heard of. Uh, basically, seasoning is, to put it in like animal terms, breaking something in. Uh, basically, it's it usually lasted a couple years, or basically you turn like fresh off the boat slaves into viable, effective workers. Uh, slaves are often uh, divided into three different groups. Uh, you have the Creoles, who are the most valuable. Uh, these were slaves who were born in the New World; they only knew slavery. Uh, you have the old Africans, or um, who were... Old Africans, whatever they were called them, uh, these are people who, you know, they, they are originally from Africa, but they've been in the New World for quite a while. These were the second most valuable, and the least valuable slaves were actually the uh, New Africans, or the Saltwater Negroes, they were often called. Uh, these are people fresh off the boat, fresh in from Africa. These are actually the least valuable slaves. Now, why would they be the least valuable? Well, they're the most, they're the least seasoned. They don't necessarily know the language, and they don't know if they're going to acclimate to the area well. I mean, one of the things with seasoning, it's about a year or so to see if the slave is going to survive this new climate. You know, are they going to become acclimated to the food? You know, will they accept their new name? And, you know, will they be able to understand the language well enough so they could have commands told to them? You know, are they going to have the African broken out of them, in a sense? Um... You know, somebody who is unseasoned is deemed as not a very valuable slave. I mean, they could be the biggest, strongest slave, but if they were, you know, if they were just fresh off the boat from Africa, they may not be, they may not survive. Uh, The West African masters would give their slaves new names, um, various, various names. Uh, Generally, they were like something out of the, you know, the, the Bible or actually very common was like names from antiquity. It's like, you know, Hercules, Apollo, things like that. Very common for, to pick slave names from antiquity. But it's mainly basically giving one a new identity. Um, you know, um, give them a new name, uh, learn enough of the European language so that you can at least take commands. That's pretty much all they cared about is can you take commands or not. Uh, the, the planners, they, they house the slaves with the Creoles and the old Africans, kind of training them as new recruits. Uh, generally, the people who come off the boat aren't working immediately because they they don't want the, the masters don't want them to like f- screw up the system. Uh, basically, you know the they, these creoles creoles in particular, you know bec- those who are born of the New World, you know they they don't know too much about germ theory or whatever, but they know that people who are born in one land. Uh, typically, stay there for quite a while. Now, when they do get kind of broken a little bit, you know once they are able to like, you know learn enough of the language. They, they would do some labor, uh, generally the basic labor, uh, very much over, under the eyes of overseers. Um, overseers weren't necessarily white. Sometimes they were black. Sometimes they were an old Creole slave or a, you know old, uh, old African slave who had been there for quite a while. Uh, the slaves, at least early on, they were able to like actually sell the surplus crops and save for future. I, I should mention that in the Caribbean, um, there's about ten slaves, ten to twenty, you know, enslaved person, African persons, for every one white person, for every European person. So the slaves very much outnumber the white persons in the Caribbean, and they actually get a little bit more autonomy, uh, more autonomy than you might get in other places like uh, in the United States later on, where you have a much higher population. Of uh, white persons, the ratio of white persons to enslaved persons. There's about two white people for every one enslaved person in, in uh, the later United States and the colonies. Whereas in a place like um, the Caribbean, there's anywhere from ten to twenty slaves, uh, African persons, for every one uh, European person. Uh, these new Africans do learn building. They learn, uh, you know, agricultural skills. Um, this, like I said, this went on for a couple months. Um, maybe to a year. Uh, The various criteria for basically saying if a slave was uh, broken or not, not broken, but was fully seasoned, uh, there's a couple different criteria. Uh, Number one is simply survival. If they survive for a year or two, it's a pretty good assumption that they are going to survive from then on. Remember, about a third of all slaves die in the seasoning process generally, sorry, a third of the slaves who do die, die during the seizing process, generally because of survival. They might catch a disease. They may not acclimate to the climate. uh, Their bodies may not adjust to the uh, food, uh, for instance. So that could be a problem. Likewise, adapting to the new food, pretty much no African food is there in the new world. Later on, the Africans would bring some stuff. But by and large, the food of the new world is completely different. Uh, The climate is completely different. And also the language. Do they know the language well enough to take commands, you know, be understood, speak the language well enough to respond if they're spoken to, uh, do they think of themselves as their name, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the final criterion, and this is, this is kind of bleak, but the final criterion for if a slave was considered fully seasoned was if they stopped trying to kill themselves. Um, uh, <laughs> like I said, nothing's really funny in this lecture, but that's just, it's, it's just so stark. It's basically, you know, slaves would try to kill themselves even once they get, you know, even once they're on land again, they would be despondent, depressed, I mean, for obvious reasons. Uh, however, once a slave stopped being suicidal, you know, stopped being depressed, started just like kind of moving on with their life, such as it was, that was really the final exam of whether or not a, um, a slave was considered fully seasoned. Now, uh, African men do die at a higher rate than women. Um, still, you do have West African culture being preserved, um, even though you know the, the masters don't want them to speak the language. That's only in front of the masters, and you have to remember, and in, in, like in the Caribbean, there are way more Africans than there are Europeans. So, like, a lot of West African culture gets preserved. Like during the passage, they would speak to each other, and especially during seasoning, you know, whenever the the new Africans were with the old Africans and creoles. A lot of times, the uh, you know the old Africans would ask the new Africans, like you know, what's going on in Africa? Have you heard of my tribe? Sort of things like that. They'd actually be able to speak to each other in the same language. Uh, a lot of different cultures come about because of it. Uh, for instance, there's definitely a, a culture based around what ship you're on. Uh, they start building new new family ties. Um, a lot of times, uh, a lot of these slaves would consider people that they were on the boat with like family. And like, there was like a taboo against marrying somebody that you were on the ship with because it was almost like marrying your sister or something. So even though they are deemed broken, quote unquote, by the Europeans, there's still ample evidence that West Africans are keeping their autonomy, keeping their authority and mainly keeping their culture. A lot of cultural stuff, particularly in a place like the Caribbean where, you know, mortality rates do go down quite a bit and you do have such a high enslaved population as opposed to the white population. Now, I bet you're wondering, what about Brazil? Well, the problem with Brazil, at least early on, they simply didn't survive. Like, slave mortality rate in Brazil, once you get like five or six years in, is about 100%. So there's really not a chance for much of a, um, at least early on, for like slave autonomy to exist in Brazil simply because they don't survive long enough. Uh, later on, of course, Brazil, you know, Brazil has a strong African influence nowadays. Uh, that's later on. We're talking early, early times. So what does in the African slave trade? Um, a lot of it is English abolitionists. Uh, they, they use it for moral reasons. They say that, hey, these people are indeed human. God may not be exactly for it. You know, guys like Newton, you know, with his amazing grace. Uh, what really gets rid of it, though, is industrialization in England, Um once industrialization really picks up in England, what was already a fairly large um, labor surplus gets even bigger. And I should mention, like, no slaves went to England. They mainly went to the New World. The uh, Britain abolishes the Atlantic slave trade, and actually they made it in Somerset versus Stewart. It's a fairly famous law case where basically any slave who landed on English soil would become free. Um, this was not just for altruistic reasons. Uh, those people who do have jobs were actually quite afraid of slaves. Uh, they are afraid that they would take their jobs if they could not compete with the most a labor force. So getting rid of slavery, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit, uh, just because somebody is anti-slavery doesn't mean they're pro-black, particularly before the Civil War. A lot of times they have very racist and um, self-interest in making sure slavery doesn't come around. Not because they're great humanitarians, they just don't want the competition. Uh, Congress would ultimately outlaw the slave trade. Um, It's it's permanently outlawed in 1820. You do have um, smugglers and stuff bringing in more slaves up until the beginning of the Civil War. However, after 1820, the domestic slave trade really, really gets big. Uh, Weirdly enough, the people who want the slave trade to continue even longer are actually the people in West Africa. Uh, People like the Asante, people like the Dahomey, their whole economy was dependent upon the slave trade. Uh, if they get rid of, if slavery was outlawed or when slavery was outlawed, their economies were crushed because over the over a couple hundred years, like everything was based upon. We're going to go and raid in the interior, raid the forest people, and get them as slaves. So weirdly enough, the people who resisted the end of the slave trade the most were Africans. Granted, West Africans who were doing the enslaving, but still, irony such as it is. So in conclusion, over three centuries, uh, slavery brings about 11 million Africans to America. Most of them come to Brazil and the Caribbean. Uh, most of those who survived come between 1701 and 1810, about a 100-year period. Before that time, slave mortality rates were very high, and also they didn't really reproduce. Um, about 400,000 of these 11 million come to the later-day United States, Uh, From that 400,000 come the 40 million Americans African descent who are around today. So pretty much uh, the African Americans, you know, African, you know, black folks in America, they are descendant from the 400,000 who came to North America. But the vast majority did not come to North America. The vast majority went to places like Brazil and the Caribbean. And so that is going to do it for this lecture. As I said, this is not a fun one by any stretch, uh, but it's a very important one. And when we talk in class, I want you to think about this idea of cruelty, but also how slavery changed, how they um, really adapted slavery based upon geography, but also the need. You know, slavery was not a monolithic thing by any stretch of the imagination. So for that, this is Dr. Tully for History 311.